0: Chapters forty-one and forty-two of the portrait of a lady by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter forty-one. Osmond touched on this matter that evening for the first time, coming very late into the drawing room where she was sitting alone. They had spent the evening at home, and Pansy had gone to bed. He himself had been sitting since dinner in a small apartment in which he had arranged his books and which he called his study. At ten o'clock, Lord Warburton had come in, as he always did when he knew from Isabel that she was to be at home. He was going somewhere else, and he sat for half an hour. Isabel, after asking him for news of Ralph, said very little to him, on purpose. She wished him to talk with her stepdaughter. She pretended to read, she even went after a little to the piano. She asked herself if she mightn't leave the room. She had come little by little to think well of the idea of Pansy's becoming the wife of the master of beautiful Lockley, though at first it had not presented itself in a manner to excite her enthusiasm. Madame Merle that afternoon had applied the match to an accumulation of inflammable material. When Isabel was unhappy, she always looked about her, partly from impulse and partly by theory, for some form of positive exertion. She could never rid herself of the sense that unhappiness was a state of disease, of suffering as opposed to doing. To do, it hardly mattered what, would therefore be an escape, perhaps in some degree a remedy. Besides, she wished to convince herself that she had done everything possible to content her husband. She was determined not to be haunted by visions of his wife's limpness under appeal. It would please him greatly to see Pansy married to an English nobleman, and justly please him, since this nobleman was so sound a character. It seemed to Isabel, that if she could make it her duty to bring about such an event, she should play the part of a good wife. She wanted to be that, she wanted to be able to believe sincerely, and with proof of it, that she had been that. Then such an undertaking had other recommendations. It would occupy her, and she desired occupation. It would even amuse her, and if she could really amuse herself, she perhaps might be saved. Lastly, it would be a service to Lord Warburton, who evidently pleased himself greatly with the charming girl. It was a little weird that he should, being what he was, but there was no accounting for such impressions. Pansy might captivate anyone, anyone at least but Lord Warburton. Isabel would have thought her too small, too slight, perhaps even too artificial for that. There was always a little of the doll about her, and that was not what he had been looking for. Still, who could say what men ever were looking for? They looked for what they found, they knew what pleased them, only when they saw it. No theory was valid in such matters, and nothing was more unaccountable or more natural than anything else. If he had cared for her, it might seem odd that he should care for Pansy, who was so different, but he had not cared for her so much as he had supposed, or, if he had, he had completely got over it, and it was natural that as that affair had failed, he should think something of quite another sort might succeed. Enthusiasm, as I say, had not come at first to Isabel, but it came to-day, and made her feel almost happy. It was astonishing what happiness she could still find in the idea of procuring a pleasure for her husband. It was a pity, however, that Edward Rosier had crossed the path. At this reflection, the light that had suddenly gleamed upon that path lost something of its brightness. Isabel was unfortunately as sure that Pansy thought Mr. Rosier the nicest of all the young men, as sure as if she had held an interview with her on the subject— It was very tiresome she should be so sure, when she had carefully abstained from informing herself, almost as tiresome as that poor Mr. Rosier should have taken it into his own head. He was certainly inferior to Lord Warburton. It was not the difference in fortune so much as the difference in men. The young American was really so light a weight. He was much more the type of the useless fine gentleman than the English nobleman. It was true that there was no particular reason why Pansy should marry a statesman. Still, if a statesman admired her, that was his affair, and she would make a perfect little pearl of a peeress. It may seem to the reader that Mrs. Osmond had grown of a sudden strangely cynical, for she ended by saying to herself that this difficulty could probably be arranged an impediment that was embodied in poor Rosier could not, anyhow, present itself as a dangerous one. There were always means of levelling secondary obstacles. Isabel was perfectly aware that she had not taken the measure of Pansy's tenacity, which might prove to be inconveniently great, but she inclined to see her as rather letting go, under suggestion, than as clutching under deprecation, since she had certainly the faculty of assent developed in a very much higher degree than that of protest. She would cling, yes, she would cling, but it really mattered to her very little what she clung to. Lord Warburton would do as well as Mr. Rosier, especially as she seemed quite to like him. She had expressed this sentiment to Isabel without a single reservation. She had said she thought his conversation most interesting.' He had told her all about India. His manner to Pansy had been of the rightest and easiest. Isabel noticed that for herself, as she also observed that he talked to her not in the least in a patronizing way, reminding himself of her youth and simplicity, but quite as if she understood his subjects with that sufficiency with which she followed those of the fashionable operas. This went far enough for attention to the music and the baritone. He was careful only to be kind. He was as kind as he had been to another fluttered young chit at Garden Court. A girl might well be touched by that. She remembered how she herself had been touched, and said to herself that if she had been as simple as Pansy, the impression would have been deeper still. She had not been simple when she refused him. That operation had been as complicated as later her acceptance of Osmond had been. Pansy, however, in spite of her simplicity, really did understand, and was glad that Lord Warburton should talk to her, not about her partners and bouquets, but about the state of Italy, the condition of the peasantry, the famous grist-tax, the pellagra, his impressions of Roman society. She looked at him as she drew her needle through her tapestry, with sweet, submissive eyes, and when she lowered them, she gave little quiet, oblique glances at his person, his hands, his feet, his clothes, as if she were considering him. Even his person, Isabel might have reminded her, was better than Mr. Rosier's. But Isabel contented herself at such moments with wondering where this gentleman was. He came no more to Palazzo Rocanera. It was surprising, as I say, the hold it had taken of her the idea of assisting her husband to be pleased. It was surprising for a variety of reasons which I shall presently touch upon. On the evening I speak of, while Lord Warburton sat there, she had been on the point of taking the great step of going out of the room and leaving her companions alone. I say the great step because it was in this light that Gilbert Osmond would have regarded it and Isabel was trying as much as possible to take her husband's view. She succeeded after a fashion, but she fell short of the point I mention. After all, she couldn't rise to it. Something held her, and made this impossible. It was not exactly that it would be base or insidious, for women as a general thing practice such manoeuvres with a perfectly good conscience and Isabel was instinctively much more true than false to the common genius of her sex. There was a vague doubt that interposed, a sense that she was not quite sure. So she remained in the drawing-room, and after a while Lord Warburton went off to his party, of which he promised to give Pansy a full account on the morrow. After he had gone, she wondered if she had prevented something which would have happened if she had absented herself for a quarter of an hour. And then she pronounced, always mentally, that when their distinguished visitor should wish her to go away, he would easily find means to let her know it. Pansy said nothing whatever about him after he had gone, and Isabel studiously said nothing, as she had taken a vow of reserve until after he should have declared himself. He was a little longer in coming to this than might seem to accord with the description he had given Isabel of his feelings. Pansy went to bed, and Isabel had to admit that she could not now guess what her stepdaughter was thinking of. Her transparent little companion was for the moment not to be seen through. She remained alone, looking at the fire, until at the end of half an hour her husband came in. He moved about a while in silence, and then sat down. He looked at the fire like herself, but she now had transferred her eyes from the flickering flame in the chimney to Osmond's face, and she watched him while he kept his silence. Covert observation had become a habit with her, an instinct of which it is not an exaggeration to say, that it was allied to that of self-defence, had made it habitual. She wished as much as possible to know his thoughts, to know what he would say beforehand, so that she might prepare her answer. Preparing answers had not been her strong point of old. She had rarely in this respect got further than thinking afterwards of clever things she might have said. But she had learned caution, learned it in a measure from her husband's very countenance. It was the same face she had looked into, with eyes equally earnest, perhaps— but less penetrating, on the terrace of a Florentine villa, except that Osmond had grown slightly stouter since his marriage. He still, however, might strike one as very distinguished. "'Has Lord Warburton been here?' he presently asked. "'Yes, he stayed half an hour.' "'Did he see Pansy?' "'Yes, he sat on the sofa beside her.' "'Did he talk with her much?' he talked almost only to her it seems to me he's attentive isn't that what you call it i don't call it anything said isabel i've waited for you to give it a name that's a consideration you don't always show osmond answered after a moment i've determined this time to try and act as you'd like i've so often failed of that osmond turned his head slowly looking at her Are you trying to quarrel with me? No, I'm trying to live at peace. Nothing's more easy. You know I don't quarrel myself. What do you call it when you try to make me angry? Isabel asked. I don't try. If I've done so, it has been the most natural thing in the world. Moreover, I'm not in the least trying now. Isabel smiled. It doesn't matter. I've determined never to be angry again. That's an excellent resolve. Your temper isn't good." No, it's not good. She pushed away the book she had been reading, and took up the band of tapestry Pansy had left on the table. That's partly why I've not spoken to you about this business of my daughters, Osmond said, designating Pansy in the manner that was most frequent with him. I was afraid I should encounter opposition. THAT YOU TOO WOULD HAVE VIEWS ON THE SUBJECT. I'VE SENT LITTLE Rosier ABOUT HIS BUSINESS. YOU WERE AFRAID I'D PLEAD FOR MR. Rosier, HAVEN'T YOU NOTICED THAT I'VE NEVER SPOKEN TO YOU OF HIM? I'VE NEVER GIVEN YOU A CHANCE. WE'VE SO LITTLE CONVERSATION IN THESE DAYS. I KNOW HE WAS AN OLD FRIEND OF YOURS. YES, HE'S AN OLD FRIEND OF MINE. Isabel cared little more for him than for the tapestry that she held in her hand, but it was true that he was an old friend, and that with her husband she felt a desire not to extenuate such ties. He had a way of expressing contempt for them which fortified her loyalty to them, even when, as in the present case, they were in themselves insignificant. She sometimes felt a sort of passion of tenderness for memories which had no other merit than that they belonged to her unmarried life. "'But as regards Pansy,' she added in a moment, "'I've given him no encouragement.' "'That's fortunate,' Osmond observed. "'Fortunate for me, I suppose you mean. For him it matters little.' "'There's no use talking of him,' Osmond said. "'As I tell you, I've turned him out.' "'Yes, but a lover outside's always a lover.' He's sometimes even more of one. Mr. Rosier still has hope.' "'He's welcome to the comfort of it. My daughter has only to sit perfectly quiet to become Lady Warburton.' "'Should you like that?' Isabel asked, with a simplicity which was not so affected as it may appear. She was resolved to assume nothing, for Osmond had a way of unexpectedly turning her assumptions against her. The intensity with which he would like his daughter to become Lady Warburton had been the very basis of her own recent reflections. But that was for herself. She would recognise nothing until Osmond should have put it into words. She would not take for granted with him that he thought Lord Warburton a prize worth an amount of effort that was unusual among the Osmonds. It was Gilbert's constant intimation that for him nothing in life was a prize, that he treated as from equal to equal with the most distinguished people in the world, and that his daughter had only to look about her to pick out a prince. It cost him, therefore, a lapse from consistency to say explicitly that he yearned for Lord Warburton, and that if this nobleman should escape his equivalent might not be found. With which, moreover, It was another of his customary implications that he was never inconsistent. He would have liked his wife to glide over the point, but strangely enough, now that she was face to face with him, and although an hour before she had almost invented a scheme for pleasing him, Isabel was not accommodating, would not glide. And yet she knew exactly the effect on his mind of her question. It would operate as a humiliation." Never mind. He was terribly capable of humiliating her, all the more so that he was also capable of waiting for great opportunities and of showing sometimes an almost unaccountable indifference to small ones. Isabel perhaps took a small opportunity because she would not have availed herself of a great one. Osmond at present acquitted himself very honourably. I should like it extremely, it would be a great marriage. And then Lord Warburton has another advantage, he's an old friend of yours. It would be pleasant for him to come into the family. It's very odd Pansy's admirers should all be your old friends.' "'It's natural that they should come to see me. In coming to see me they see Pansy. Seeing her, it's natural they should fall in love with her.' "'So I think, but you're not bound to do so.' "'If she should marry Lord Warburton, I should be very glad,' Isabel went on frankly. "'He's an excellent man. "'You say, however, that she is only to sit perfectly still. "'Perhaps she won't sit perfectly still. "'If she loses Mr. Roche's, she may jump up.' Osmond appeared to give no heed to this. He sat gazing at the fire. "'Pansy would like to be a great lady,' he remarked in a moment "'with a certain tenderness of tone.' "'She wishes above all to please,' he added. "'To please Mr. Rozier, perhaps?' "'No, to please me.' "'Me too, a little, I think,' said Isabel. "'Yes, she has a great opinion of you, but you'll do what I like.' "'If you're sure of that, it's very well,' she went on. "'Meantime,' said Osmond, "'I should like our distinguished visitor to speak.' "'He has spoken, to me. "'He has told me that it would be a great pleasure to him "'to believe she could care for him.' "'Osmond turned his head quickly, "'but at first he said nothing. "'Then—' "'Why didn't you tell me that?' he asked sharply. "'There was no opportunity. "'You know how we live. "'I've taken the first chance that is offered.' "'Did you speak to him of Rosier? "'Oh, yes, a little.' "'That was hardly necessary.' I thought it best he should know, so so that—so that—and Isabel paused. So that what? So that he might act accordingly. So that he might back out, you mean? No, so that he might advance while there's yet time. That's not the effect it seems to have had. You should have patience, said Isabel. You know Englishmen are shy. This one's not. He was not when he made love to you. She had been afraid Osmond would speak of that. It was disagreeable to her. "'I beg your pardon. He was extremely so,' she returned. He answered nothing for some time. He took up a book and fingered the pages, while she sat silent and occupied herself with Pansy's tapestry. "'You must have a great deal of influence with him,' Osmond went on at last. "'The moment you really wish it, you can bring him to the point.' THIS WAS MORE OFFENSIVE STILL, BUT SHE FELT THE GREAT NATURALNESS OF HIS SAYING IT, AND IT WAS, AFTER ALL, EXTREMELY LIKE WHAT SHE HAD SAID TO HERSELF. WHY SHOULD I HAVE INFLUENCE, SHE ASKED, WHAT HAVE I EVER DONE TO PUT HIM UNDER AN OBLIGATION TO ME? YOU REFUSED TO MARRY HIM, SAID OSMOND, WITH HIS EYES ON HIS BOOK. I MUST NOT PRESUME TOO MUCH ON THAT, SHE REPLIED. HE THREW DOWN THE BOOK PRESENTLY AND GOT UP standing before the fire with his hands behind him. Well, I hold that it lies in your hands. I shall leave it there. With a little good will, you may manage it. Think that over, and remember how much I count on you. He waited a little, to give her time to answer, but she answered nothing, and he presently strolled out of the room. End of chapter 41 Chapter 42 She had answered nothing, because his words had put the situation before her, and she was absorbed in looking at it. There was something in them that suddenly made vibrations deep, so that she had been afraid to trust herself to speak. After he had gone, she leaned back in her chair and closed her eyes. And for a long time, far into the night and still further, she sat in the still drawing-room given up to her meditation. A servant came in to attend to the fire, and she bade him bring fresh candles and then go to bed. Osmond had told her to think of what he had said, and she did so indeed, and of many other things. The suggestion from another that she had a definite influence on Lord Warburton, this had given her the start that accompanies unexpected recognition.' Was it true that there was something still between them that might be a handle to make him declare himself to Pansy? A susceptibility, on his part, to approval? A desire to do what would please her? Isabel had hitherto not asked herself the question, because she had not been forced, but now that it was directly presented to her, she saw the answer, and the answer frightened her. Yes, there was something— something on Lord Warburton's part. When he had first come to Rome, she believed the link that united them to be completely snapped, but little by little she had been reminded that it had yet a palpable existence. It was as thin as a hair, but there were moments when she seemed to hear it vibrate. For herself nothing was changed. What she once thought of him, she always thought. It was needless this feeling should change it seemed to her in fact a better feeling than ever. But he? Had he still the idea that she might be more to him than other women? Had he the wish to profit by the memory of the few moments of intimacy through which they had once passed? Isabel knew she had read some of the signs of such a disposition. But what were his hopes, his pretensions?' and in what strange way were they mingled with his evidently very sincere appreciation of poor pansy was he in love with gilbert osmond's wife and if so what comfort did he expect to derive from it if he was in love with pansy he was not in love with her stepmother and if he was in love with her stepmother he was not in love with pansy was she to cultivate the advantage she possessed in order to make him commit himself to pansy Knowing he would do so for her sake, and not for the small creature's own? Was this the service her husband had asked of her? This, at any rate, was the duty with which she found herself confronted, from the moment she admitted to herself that her old friend had still an uneradicated predilection for her society. It was not an agreeable task. It was, in fact, a repulsive one. She asked herself with dismay whether Lord Warburton were pretending to be in love with Pansy in order to cultivate another satisfaction, and what might be called other chances. Of this refinement of duplicity she presently acquitted him. She preferred to believe him in perfect good faith. But if his admiration for Pansy were a delusion, this was scarcely better than its being an affectation isabel wandered among these ugly possibilities until she had completely lost her way some of them as she suddenly encountered them seemed ugly enough then she broke out of the labyrinth rubbing her eyes and declared that her imagination surely did her little honour and that her husband's did him even less lord warburton was as disinterested as he need be and she was no more to him than she need wish She would rest upon this till the contrary should be proved, proved more effectually than by a cynical intimation of Osmond's. Such a resolution, however, brought her this evening but little peace, for her soul was haunted with terrors which crowded to the foreground of thought as quickly as a place was made for them. What had suddenly set them into livelier motion she hardly knew, unless it were the strange impression she had received in the afternoon of her husband's being in more direct communication with madame merle than she suspected that impression came back to her from time to time and now she wondered it had never come before besides this her short interview with osmond half an hour ago was a striking example of his faculty for making everything with her that he touched spoiling everything for her that he looked at it was very well to undertake to give him a proof of loyalty the real fact was that the knowledge of his expecting a thing raised a presumption against it it was as if he had had the evil eye as if his presence were a blight and his favour a misfortune was the fault in himself or only in the deep mistrust she had conceived for him This mistrust was now the clearest result of their short married life. A gulf had opened between them over which they looked at each other, with eyes that were on either side a declaration of the deception suffered. It was a strange opposition, of the like of which she had never dreamed, an opposition in which the vital principle of the one was a thing of contempt to the other. It was not her fault. She had practised no deception. She had only admired and believed. She had taken all the first steps in the purest confidence, and then she had suddenly found the infinite vista of a multiplied life to be a dark, narrow alley with a dead wall at the end. Instead of leading to high places of happiness, from which the world would seem to lie below one, so that one could look down with a sense of exaltation and advantage, and judge and choose and pity. It led, rather, downward and earthward, into realms of restriction and depression, where the sound of other lives, easier and freer, was heard as from above, and where it served to deepen the feeling of failure. It was her deep distrust of her husband. This was what darkened the world. That is a sentiment easily indicated, but not so easily explained, and so composite in its character that much time and still more suffering had been needed to bring it to its actual perfection. Suffering with Isabel was an active condition. It was not a chill, a stupor, a despair. It was a passion of thought, of speculation, of response to every pressure. She flattered herself that she had kept her failing faith to herself, however, that no one suspected it but Osmond. Oh, he knew it, and there were times when she thought he enjoyed it. It had come gradually. It was not till the first year of their life together, so admirably intimate at first, had closed, that she had taken the alarm. Then the shadows had begun to gather— It was as if Osmond deliberately, almost malignantly, had put out the lights one by one. The dusk at first was vague and thin, and she could still see her way in it. But it steadily deepened, and if now and again it had occasionally lifted, there were certain corners of her prospect that were impenetrably black. These shadows were not an emanation from her own mind, she was very sure of that, She had done her best to be just and temperate, to see only the truth. They were a part, they were a kind of creation and consequence of her husband's very presence. They were not his misdeeds, his turpitudes. She accused him of nothing, that is, but of one thing which was not a crime. She knew of no wrong he had done, he was not violent, he was not cruel, she simply believed he hated her. That was all she accused him of, and the miserable part of it was precisely that it was not a crime, for against a crime she might have found redress. He had discovered that she was so different, that she was not what he had believed she would prove to be. He had thought at first he could change her, and she had done her best to be what he would like. But she was, after all, herself she couldn't help that and now there was no use pretending wearing a mask or a dress for he knew her and had made up his mind she was not afraid of him she had no apprehension he would hurt her for the ill-will he bore her was not of that sort he would if possible never give her a pretext never put himself in the wrong Isabel, scanning the future with dry fixed eyes saw that he would have the better of her there. She would give him many pretexts, she would often put herself in the wrong. There were times when she almost pitied him, for if she had not deceived him in intention, she understood how completely she must have done so in fact. She had effaced herself when he first knew her. She had made herself small, pretending there was less of her than there really was. It was because she had been under the extraordinary charm that he, on his side, had taken pains to put forth. He was not changed, he had not disguised himself during the year of his courtship any more than she. But she had seen only half his nature then, as one saw the disc of the moon when it was partly masked by the shadow of the earth. She saw the full moon now, she saw the whole man, She had kept still, as it were, so that he should have a free field, and yet, in spite of this, she had mistaken a part for the whole. Ah! she had been immensely under the charm. It had not passed away, it was there still. She still knew perfectly what it was that made Osmond delightful when he chose to be. He had wished to be when he made love to her, and, as she had wished to be charmed, it was not wonderful he had succeeded. HE HAD SUCCEEDED BECAUSE HE HAD BEEN SINCERE. IT NEVER OCCURRED TO HER NOW TO DENY HIM THAT. HE ADMIRED HER. HE HAD TOLD HER WHY. BECAUSE SHE WAS THE MOST IMAGINATIVE WOMAN HE HAD KNOWN. IT MIGHT VERY WELL HAVE BEEN TRUE, FOR DURING THOSE MONTHS SHE HAD IMAGINED A WORLD OF THINGS THAT HAD NO SUBSTANCE. SHE HAD HAD A MORE WONDROUS VISION OF HIM, FED THROUGH CHARMED SENSES, AND, OH, SUCH A stirred FANCY. SHE HAD NOT READ HIM RIGHT. A certain combination of features had touched her and in them she had seen the most striking of figures that he was poor and lonely and yet that somehow he was noble that was what had interested her and seemed to give her her opportunity there had been an indefinable beauty about him in his situation in his mind in his face she had felt at the same time that he was helpless and ineffectual but the feeling had taken the form of a tenderness which was the very flower of respect. He was like a sceptical voyager, strolling on the beach, while he waited for the tide, looking seaward, yet not putting to sea. It was in all this she had found her occasion. She would launch his boat for him, she would be his providence, it would be a good thing to love him. And she had loved him, she had so anxiously and yet so ardently given herself. A good deal for what she found in him, but a good deal also for what she brought him and what might enrich the gift. As she looked back at the passion of those full weeks, she perceived in it a kind of maternal strain, the happiness of a woman who felt that she was a contributor, that she came with charged hands. But for her money, as she saw to-day, she would never have done it. And then her mind wandered off to poor Mr. Touchett sleeping under the english turf the beneficent author of infinite woe for this was the fantastic fact at bottom her money had been a burden had been on her mind which was filled with the desire to transfer the weight of it to some other conscience to some more prepared receptacle what would lighten her own conscience more effectually than to make it over to the man with the best taste in the world Unless she should have given it to a hospital, there would have been nothing better she could do with it, and there was no charitable institution in which she had been as much interested as in Gilbert Osmond. He would use her fortune in a way that would make her think better of it, and rub off a certain grossness attaching to the good luck of an unexpected inheritance. There had been nothing very delicate in inheriting seventy thousand pounds— The delicacy had been all in Mr. Touchett's leaving them to her. But to marry Gilbert Osmond, and bring him such a portion, in that there would be delicacy for her as well. There would be less for him, that was true, but that was his affair, and if he loved her, he wouldn't object to her being rich. Had he not had the courage to say he was glad she was rich? Isabel's cheek burned when she asked herself, if she had really married on a factitious theory in order to do something finely appreciable with her money. But she was able to answer quickly enough that this was only half the story. It was because a certain ardour took possession of her, a sense of the earnestness of his affection and a delight in his personal qualities. He was better than any one else. This supreme conviction had filled her life for months, and enough of it still remained to prove to her that she could not have done otherwise. The finest, in the sense of being the subtlest, manly organism she had ever known had become her property, and the recognition of her having but to put out her hands and take it had been originally a sort of act of devotion. She had not been mistaken about the beauty of his mind, she knew that organ perfectly now. SHE HAD LIVED WITH IT, SHE HAD LIVED IN IT, ALMOST. IT APPEARED TO HAVE BECOME HER HABITATION. IF SHE HAD BEEN CAPTURED, IT HAD TAKEN A FIRM HAND TO SEIZE HER. THAT REFLECTION PERHAPS HAD SOME WORTH. A MIND MORE ingenious, MORE PLIANT, MORE CULTIVATED, MORE TRAINED TO ADMIRABLE EXERCISES SHE HAD NOT ENCOUNTERED. AND IT WAS THIS EXQUISITE INSTRUMENT SHE HAD NOW TO RECKON WITH. She lost herself in infinite dismay, when she thought of the magnitude of HIS deception. It was a wonder, perhaps, in view of this, that he didn't hate her more. She remembered perfectly the first sign he had given of it. It had been like the bell that was to ring up the curtain upon the real drama of their life. He said to her one day that she had too many ideas, and that she must get rid of them. He had told her that already, before their marriage but then she had not noticed it. It had come back to her only afterwards. This time she might well have noticed it, because he had really meant it. The words had been nothing superficially, but when, in the light of deepening experience, she had looked into them, they had appeared portentous. He had really meant it. He would have liked her to have nothing of her own but her pretty appearance. She had known she had too many ideas. She had more, even, than he had supposed, many more than she had expressed to him when he had asked her to marry him. Yes, she had been hypocritical. She had liked him so much. She had too many ideas for herself. But that was just what one married for, to share them with someone else. One couldn't pluck them up by the roots, though of course one might suppress them, be careful not to utter them. It had not been this, however, his objecting to her opinions, This had been nothing. She had no opinions, none that she would not have been eager to sacrifice in the satisfaction of feeling herself loved for it. What he had meant had been the whole thing, her character, the way she felt, the way she judged. This was what she had kept in reserve, this was what he had not known until he had found himself, with the door closed behind, as it were, set down face to face with it. She had a certain way of looking at life which he took as a personal offence. Heaven knew that now at least it was a very humble, accommodating way. The strange thing was that she should not have suspected from the first that his own had been so different. She had thought it so large, so enlightened, so perfectly that of an honest man and a gentleman. Hadn't he assured her that he had no superstitions no dull limitations, no prejudices that had lost their freshness? Hadn't he all the appearance of a man living in the open air of the world, indifferent to small considerations, caring only for truth and knowledge, and believing that two intelligent people ought to look for them together, and whether they found them or not, find at least some happiness in the search? He had told her he loved the conventional. But there was a sense in which this seemed a noble declaration. In that sense, that of the love of harmony and order and decency, and of all the stately offices of life, she went with him freely, and his warning had contained nothing ominous. But when, as the months had elapsed, she had followed him further, and he had led her into the mansion of his own habitation, then, then she had seen where she really was. She could live it over again, the incredulous terror with which she had taken the measure of her dwelling. Between those four walls she had lived ever since, they were to surround her for the rest of her life. It was the house of darkness, the house of dumbness, the house of suffocation. Osmond's beautiful mind gave it neither light nor air. Osmond's beautiful mind, indeed, seemed to peep down from a small high window and mock at her of course it had not been physical suffering for physical suffering there might have been a remedy she could come and go she had her liberty her husband was perfectly polite he took himself so seriously it was something appalling under all his culture his cleverness his amenity under his good nature his facility his knowledge of life his egotism lay hidden like a serpent in a bank of flowers She had taken him seriously, but she had not taken him so seriously as that. How could she, especially when she had known him better? She was to think of him as he thought of himself, as the first gentleman in Europe. So it was that she had thought of him at first, and that indeed was the reason she had married him. But when she began to see what it implied, she drew back. There was more in the bond that she had meant to put her name to it implied a sovereign contempt for every one but some three or four very exalted people whom he envied and for everything in the world but half a dozen ideas of his own that was very well she would have gone with him even there a long distance for he pointed out to her so much of the baseness and shabbiness of life opened her eyes so wide to the stupidity the depravity the ignorance of mankind that she had been properly impressed with the infinite vulgarity of things, and of the virtue of keeping oneself unspotted by it. But this base ignoble world, it appeared, was after all what one was to live for, one was to keep it for ever in one's eye, in order not to enlighten or convert or redeem it, but to extract from it some recognition of one's own superiority. On the one hand it was despicable but on the other it afforded a standard. Osmond had talked to Isabel about his renunciation, his indifference, the ease with which he dispensed with the usual aids to success, and all this had seemed to her admirable. She had thought it a grand indifference, an exquisite independence. But indifference was really the last of his qualities. She had never seen anyone who thought so much of others. For herself, avowedly, the world had always interested her, and the study of her fellow-creatures had been her constant passion. She would have been willing, however, to renounce all her curiosities and sympathies for the sake of a personal life, if the person concerned had only been able to make her believe it was a gain. This, at least, was her present conviction and the thing certainly would have been easier than to care for society, as Osmond cared for it. He was unable to live without it, and she saw that he had never really done so. He had looked at it out of his window, even when he appeared to be most detached from it. He had his ideal, just as she had tried to have hers, only it was strange that people should seek for justice in such different quarters his ideal was the conception of high prosperity and propriety of the aristocratic life which he now saw he deemed himself always in essence at least to have led he had never lapsed from it for an hour he would never have recovered from the shame of doing so that again was very well here too she would have agreed but they attached such different ideas such different associations and desires, to the same formulas. Her notion of the aristocratic life was simply the union of great knowledge with great liberty, the knowledge that would give one a sense of duty and the liberty a sense of enjoyment. But for Osmond it was altogether a thing of forms, a conscious, calculated attitude. He was fond of the old, the consecrated, the transmitted. So was she, but she pretended to do what she chose with it. He had an immense esteem for tradition. He had told her once that the best thing in the world was to have it, but that if one was so unfortunate as not to have it, one must immediately proceed to make it. She knew that he meant by this that she hadn't it, but that he was better off, though from what source he had derived his traditions she never learned. He had a very large collection of them, however, that was very certain and after a little she began to see the great thing was to act in accordance with them the great thing not only for him but for her isabel had an undefined conviction that to serve for another person than their proprietor traditions must be of a thoroughly superior kind But she nevertheless assented to this intimation that she too must march to the stately music that floated down from unknown periods in her husband's past. She who of old had been so free of step, so desultory, so devious, so much the reverse of processional. There were certain things they must do, a certain posture they must take, certain people they must know and not know. When she saw this rigid system close about her, draped, though it was, in pictured tapestries, that sense of darkness and suffocation of which I have spoken took possession of her. She seemed shut up with an odour of mould and decay. She had resisted, of course, at first very humorously, ironically, tenderly. Then, as the situation grew more serious, eagerly, passionately, pleadingly, She had pleaded the cause of freedom, of doing as they chose, of not caring for the aspect and denomination of their life, the cause of other instincts and longings, of quite another ideal. Then it was that her husband's personality, touched as it never had been, stepped forth and stood erect. The things she had said were answered only by his scorn, and she could see he was ineffably ashamed of her. What did he think of her, that she was base, vulgar, ignoble? He at least knew now that she had no traditions. It had not been in his prevision of things that she should reveal such flatness. Her sentiments were worthy of a radical newspaper or a Unitarian preacher. The real offence, as she ultimately perceived, was her having a mind of her own at all. Her mind was to be his attached to his own like a small garden-plot to a deer-park. He would rake the soil gently and water the flowers. He would weed the beds and gather an occasional nosegay. It would be a pretty piece of property for a proprietor already far-reaching. He didn't wish her to be stupid. On the contrary, it was because she was clever that she had pleased him. But he expected her intelligence to operate altogether in his favour and so far from desiring her mind to be a blank he had flattered himself that it would be richly receptive he had expected his wife to feel with him and for him to enter into his opinions his ambitions his preferences and isabel was obliged to confess that this was no great insolence on the part of a man so accomplished and a husband originally at least so tender but there were certain things she could never take in to begin with they were hideously unclean she was not a daughter of the puritans but for all that she believed in such a thing as chastity and even as decency it would appear that osmond was far from doing anything of the sort some of his traditions made her push back her skirts did all women have lovers did they all lie and even the best have their price were there only three or four that didn't deceive their husbands When Isabel heard such things, she felt a greater scorn for them than for the gossip of a village parlour, a scorn that kept its freshness in a very tainted air. There was the taint of her sister-in-law. Did her husband judge only by the Countess Gemini? This lady very often lied, and she had practised deceptions that were not simply verbal. It was enough to find these facts assumed among Osmond's traditions. It was enough without giving them such a general extension. It was her scorn of his assumptions, it was this that made him draw himself up. He had plenty of contempt, and it was proper his wife should be as well furnished. But that she should turn the hot light of her disdain upon his own conception of things, this was the danger he had not allowed for. He believed he should have regulated her emotions before she came to it, and Isabel could easily imagine how his ears had scorched on his discovering that he had been too confident. When one had a wife who gave one that sensation, there was nothing left but to hate her. She was morally certain now that this feeling of hatred, which at first had been a refuge and a refreshment, had become the occupation and comfort of his life. The feeling was deep because it was sincere. He had had the revelation that she could, after all, dispense with him. If to herself the idea was startling, if it presented itself at first as a kind of infidelity, a capacity for pollution, what infinite effect might it not be expected to have had upon him? It was very simple. He despised her. She had no traditions and the moral horizon of a Unitarian minister poor Isabel, who had never been able to understand Unitarianism. This was the certitude she had been living with now for a time that she had ceased to measure. What was coming? What was before them? That was her constant question. What would he do? What ought she to do? When a man hated his wife, what did it lead to? She didn't hate him, that she was sure of. For every little while she felt a passionate wish to give him a pleasant surprise. Very often, however, she felt afraid, and it used to come over her, as I have intimated, that she had deceived him at the very first. They were strangely married at all events, and it was a horrible life. Until that morning he had scarcely spoken to her for a week. His manner was as dry as a burned-out fire. She knew there was a special reason. He was displeased at Ralph Touchett's staying on in Rome. He thought she saw too much of her cousin. He had told her a week before it was indecent she should go to him at his hotel. He would have said more than this if Ralph's invalid state had not appeared to make it brutal to denounce him, but having had to contain himself had only deepened his disgust. Isabel read all this as she would have read the hour on the clock-face. She was as perfectly aware that the sight of her interest in her cousin stirred her husband's rage as if Osmond had locked her into a room, which, she was sure, was what he wanted to do. It was her honest belief that on the whole she was not defiant, but she certainly couldn't pretend to be indifferent to Ralph. She believed he was dying at last, and that she should never see him again, and this gave her a tenderness for him that she had never known before nothing was a pleasure to her now. How could anything be a pleasure to a woman who knew that she had thrown away her life? There was an everlasting weight on her heart. There was a vivid light on everything. But Ralph's little visit was a lamp in the darkness. For the hour that she sat with him, her ache for herself became somehow her ache for him. She felt today as if he had been her brother. She had never had a brother, but if she had, and she were in trouble, and he were dying, he would be dear to her, as Ralph was. Ah, yes, if Gilbert was jealous of her, there was perhaps some reason. It didn't make Gilbert look better to sit for half an hour with Ralph. It was not that they talked of him. It was not that she complained. His name was never uttered between them. It was simply that Ralph was generous, and that her husband was not. There was something in Ralph's talk, in his smile in the mere fact of his being in Rome, that made the blasted circle round which she walked more spacious. He made her feel the good of the world. He made her feel what might have been. He was, after all, as intelligent as Osmond, quite apart from his being better. And thus it seemed to her an act of devotion to conceal her misery from him. She concealed it elaborately. She was perpetually, in their talk, hanging out curtains and arranging screens. It lived before her again, it had never had time to die, that morning in the garden at Florence when he had warned her against Osmond. She had only to close her eyes to see the place, to hear his voice, to feel the warm sweet air. How could he have known? What a mystery, what a wonder of wisdom! As intelligent as Gilbert? He was much more intelligent, to arrive at such a judgment as that. Gilbert had never been so deep, so just. She had told him then, that from her at least, he should never know if he was right. And this was what she was taking care of now. It gave her plenty to do. There was passion, exaltation, religion in it. Women find their religion sometimes in strange exercises and isabel at present in playing a part before her cousin had an idea that she was doing him a kindness it would have been a kindness perhaps if he had been for a single instant a dupe as it was the kindness consisted mainly in trying to make him believe that he had once wounded her greatly and that the event had put him to shame but that as she was very generous and he was so ill she bore him no grudge and even considerately forbore to flaunt her happiness in his face ralph smiled to himself as he lay on his sofa at this extraordinary form of consideration but he forgave her for having forgiven him she didn't wish him to have the pain of knowing she was unhappy that was the great thing and it didn't matter that such knowledge would have rather righted him For herself, she lingered in the soundless saloon long after the fire had gone out. There was no danger of her feeling the cold, she was in a fever. She heard the small hours strike, and then the great ones, but her vigil took no heed of time. Her mind, assailed by visions, was in a state of extraordinary activity, and her visions might as well come to her there, where she sat up to meet them, as on her pillow to make a mockery of rest. As I have said, she believed she was not defiant, and what could be a better proof of it than that she should linger there half the night, trying to persuade herself that there was no reason why Pansy shouldn't be married, as you would put a letter in the post office. When the clock struck four, she got up. She was going to bed at last, for the lamp had long since gone out, and the candles burned down to their sockets but even then she stopped again in the middle of the room and stood there gazing at a remembered vision that of her husband and madame merle unconsciously and familiarly associated chapter forty two